funny or fitting that we would begin the new year by getting into this passage, this specific passage, um, coming out of the Christmas season in which we remember the story of the incarnation, you know, when, when God took on flesh, when he became uh, just like one of us. The story of Samson uh, actually has some parallels to the birth of, of Jesus in a lot of ways, uh, as we'll see today as we go through the 13th chapter of, of the book of Judges, at least most of the 13th chapter. Uh, if nothing else... Uh, God's greatest act of mercy in all of history was in sending his son, Jesus. And today is also going to be, uh, we're going to be studying a passage which portrays the mercy of God in all of its splendor and in all of its glory. But before we start, now might be a good time to remember why we even read about these stories. Why God even ordained that these stories would be found in Scripture of how Israel would, would go through these cycles of slavery, oppression, freedom, slavery, oppression, freedom. And, and, and Paul tells us actually what the purpose of stories like this is. Uh, in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he writes this. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And he's speaking back to stories like this. And he goes on to say, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So at least part of the purpose of the book of Judges is to show us the futility of idolatry, to show us the futility of the desires of the flesh that we as God's people might learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before us. And we all know it's better to learn from somebody else's mistakes than it is to make the mistakes ourselves and learn the hard way, right? This is the easy way to learn. It, we can also learn, choose to learn the hard way. It's up to us. But when, uh, when we left off in this study... Israel had experienced their, their first civil war uh, under the leadership of a man named Jephthah uh, as the Ephraimites, who had this history of kind of pushing buttons and, and bullying other tribes of Israel. They, they just messed with the wrong guy this time. Jephthah uh, went to war against them. He obliterated them. Uh, and he seems to have died at a pretty young age. And Israel was judged by three men uh, after him. That's what we read at the end of chapter 12. Uh, and these men were Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon. The stories of these judges actually just make up, uh, just comprise seven total verses. I mean, it's very, very short. Each guy gets one or two verses. Uh, so there's not a lot to say about them because they weren't godly men. These people that God had appointed as judges were not godly men. They were worldly. And what we saw is they were making power plays, political moves, in order to ensure the growth and the continuation of their kingdoms. Because they viewed themselves kind of as kings. They acted like kings. They lived lives like kings. They had multiple wives like kings did. They had lots of riches like kings would. These three guys lived worldly lives. And so it's no surprise then that when we reached the first verse of the 13th chapter, we read that Israel once again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, in the past, every time this has happened before, this isn't the first time that they've done evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord puts them in the hands of their oppressors. 
So it's not the first time that this has happened, but in the past, you know, Israel's been handed over uh, to their enemies by God, and, you know, it's been for up to 20 years. But as we start chapter 13, we see that this time Israel is handed over to their enemies for 40 years. 40 years. And the difference is that this time, for the first time, Israel has not cried out to help for God. Out to God for help. Yeah, let's get my words straight. They haven't cried out to God. They haven't turned their hearts to Him. They haven't asked for mercy. They haven't asked for assistance. They are happy being worldly, pagan people. And so at this point, we know that God has quite a history with Israel, a history of being faithful to Israel, even in impossible situations. And even when Israel hasn't been faithful to God. So starting in verse 2, chapter 13, verse 2, we read this. There was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Similar, anyway. Therefore, be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Nazarites weren't a tribe. <laughs> they, they weren't, uh, anybody in Israel could be a Nazarite. They could take the Nazarite vow. I know that for the first 10, 15, 20 years that I was reading this, I was like, who are the Nazarites, you know? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a Nazarite vow. But the first thing I want us to see here is that even though the people of Israel have not called out to God for help, they haven't turned their hearts to him, they haven't prayed to him, they haven't done anything to summon him or anything. They haven't done anything. They've just kind of forgotten about him. But he still steps in to save his people. Now, some would have us believe that God's actions are contingent or conditional upon the actions of men, but nothing could be further from the truth, as if God should just wait until they call out to him. That's what some people would have us believe. But nothing could be further from the truth, if for no other reason, because that gives Man, that gives humanity the power to move the unmoved mover. It gives humanity unbridled autonomy in the universe, and it makes God just nothing more than a puppet who gets manipulated by, you know, by our actions. Perish the thought. God's actions are not contingent upon our actions. He doesn't sit there and wait to see what we're going to do and then respond you know, based on what we do. Man is not sovereign. Man is not autonomous. God is sovereign over the whole universe. And if there's anything that we've learned from this study so far, it's that humanity, apart from God's saving grace, is just a slave to sin. And we're unable to free ourselves from the clutches of sin. The fact that Israel never cries out to God is a reflection of this truth. The fact that God steps in to rescue them anyway is a reflection of the truth that God, as the sovereign king of glory and king of 
the universe, is free to do whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, in accordance with his own nature. Sometimes he'll wait for his people to cry out to him for help. Sometimes he won't. The choice is his, because he alone is sovereign. He alone is God. And people get really uncomfortable with the idea that God is free to act apart from man's will. But if we take the testimony of Scripture seriously, that by our nature, by humanity's nature, none of us is righteous. No one seeks for God. There's no fear of God in us. And the only reason that we love God, that anyone truly loves God, is because He loved us first. If we take all of these things seriously, not to mention the fact that we are born sinners. We're sinners not only by nature, but we're sinners by choice as well. If we take all of this testimony from Scripture about human nature seriously, then we have to realize that God's sovereign freedom to act, His freedom to rescue, His freedom to deliver, is our only hope. Because none of us would seek him on our own. And in this case, he's about to step in and send a deliverer, Samson, even though nobody has asked for one. And he chooses to have this rescuer come from a barren womb, a womb that has borne no children ever. You know, when when Abraham and Sarah were told that they were going to have a baby in their old age, that they were going to have a child... Uh, Sarah laughed, if you remember that. Sarah laughed at God because it was impossible for her to, naturalistically speaking, it was impossible for her to have a baby. But let's not forget that nothing is impossible with God. When Mary was told that she was going to be with child, she too, you know, she was a virgin. She had a barren womb at at that point. She didn't laugh, but she was confused, asking, how can this be? She wasn't doubting. But she was at least a little bit confused, perplexed about how this, would, how this could possibly happen. Samson is yet another miraculous birth in the Bible, as we're about to see. But the barren womb is actually a picture of the spiritual condition of Israel. They've been faithless, but they haven't been godless. They've been faithless, but they, they have had their gods. They've they've turned their hearts away from God repeatedly to other gods. And so just as a desert that's had no rain for 40 years is going to have nothing, no sign of life at all, just nothing but death and barrenness. Israel is spiritually barren at this point. So the, the barren womb of Samson's mother maybe has some significance there. And so the angel of the Lord comes to her. Who's the angel of the Lord? This is where you guys answer. Pop quiz. Jesus. Okay. The angel of the Lord is Jesus. We saw that in the story with Gideon. Uh, and, and he warns her against uh, drinking wine or strong drink. And it seems that she had probably probably given up on the idea of having kids at this point. It's probably not that she's young and a virgin or anything like that. No, she's married. And it seems like she's probably tried and she's just given up on the fact she's she's just accepted the fact that her womb is barren, and it's going to be barren. And so she wouldn't have expected to conceive. She wouldn't have been expecting that. The Lord wants to make sure, however, that she's aware beforehand that she will conceive, and she will be with a child. And God tells her that the destiny of this child has been sovereignly ordained by God. 
that he's to live under the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was usually a, a voluntary commitment that a person would make to God. Uh, this is the only place where it's not really voluntary, but it's prescribed by God. It's, it's directed by God. And uh, the, the whole Nazarite vow is outlined and described in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. Uh, 1 to 21. It contains uh, three basic rules. Number one, refrain from alcohol. Uh, either soft, you know, soft liquor, you know, like, like wine, uh, mixing wine with water, even which was a common custom in the ancient world because it kind of cleaned out the bacteria. So no alcohol, zero zip, zilch, no, no alcohol at all. In fact, the person who wished to take the Nazarite vow was also forbidden from eating anything from the grapevine. So no grapes, uh, no raisins, uh, no wine vinegar, things like that. Uh, the second basic rule is that for the duration of the vow, the person was to refrain from cutting their hair. Uh, number three, they were to avoid all contact with dead bodies. And if you're wondering what the significance of dead bodies is and what, what's that rule all about, you know, not coming into contact with dead bodies, remember that the wage of sin is death and that you and I as God's people are supposed to be dead to sin. So there's some symbolism in there with dead bodies. But notice that God is so serious about this vow, he doesn't even want the mother to drink any alcohol or to eat anything unclean because Samson is not only ordained from birth, his purpose has been ordained by God before he's even conceived. Samson's called to serve God in a very special way, and it's not voluntary. Normally, the Nazarite vow was only for a set period of time, but God sovereignly ordains that Samson's vow would be for life. And some would say that God simply knew that Samson was uh, going to choose to do this, that he was going to choose to take the Nazarite vow, but there's no hint of that anywhere in this passage. This is God's sovereign decree. His sovereign and effectual calling on Samson's life because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. That's from Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. It's all God's. He has the right to do what he's going to do. The reason that this child is to live by the Nazarite vow is obvious. He has to be different. He has to be set apart from everybody else. And he's going to, to live according to the word of God. And if you're living according to the word of God, it does mean you're going to be different. How many of you know that our country desperately needs people like that? Set apart. Different. Willing to be the black sheep for the glory of God. People who are set apart, different from the people that they're surrounded by day in and day out. Because you can't be a light in the darkness if you're acting and living and, and, and tolerating and maybe even celebrating sin just like everyone who's in the darkness does. If you want your life to shine for the glory of God, it can't look just like everybody else's life. That's just the way it is. It has to be radically different. And that was the calling on Samson's life, to be radically different from everybody else, not just from birth, but from conception. 
And we don't know a whole lot about his mother, about Samson's mother. We, we don't know, you know, is she old or young? We, we don't really know. Uh, we can speculate. We don't know her name even. It, you know, her name's nowhere in this text. Uh, we don't know if she worshipped God or not. It seems, uh, at the very least, it seems that she had been eating unclean food, uh, which was prohibited under the law of Moses, since the angel of the Lord has to tell her not to eat any unclean food. So it seems to indicate that she was living in disobedience to God, just like the rest of Israel. But what we do know about her is that she takes these instructions very, very seriously. She, she doesn't laugh. She doesn't even express any curiosity, which is kind of weird. She, she doesn't refuse. Uh, she went and she talked to her husband about it. So we continue in verses 6 to 8. Then the woman came and told her husband... A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, but he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord. And said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And so Samson's mother, she, there's not a hint of rebellion really here or, or uh, resistance or anything. She's, she's obedient to God from how it looks. She's apparently willing to subject herself to the conditions of this Nazarite vow in order to have a son who was to be used by God in a mighty way, which is similar to another mother who would obey God, putting herself at God's disposal 1,200 years later. That woman, of course, was Mary, whose response was to say, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Man, if only every... One of us could say the same thing day in and day out. I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. So I I love that she's obedient, even though it's pretty obvious that she doesn't completely understand what's going on. She thinks that this is just a man of God, quote unquote, a man of God who, who looked like the angel of the Lord. Now, she seems to be completely clueless that this was the Lord himself who came to her. Uh, And it's interesting to see what she does and doesn't relay out of this message to her husband. I I don't even assume that it was necessarily intentional, but uh, she omits a part and she adds a part, uh, a very important detail. She says nothing, nothing about Samson's ultimate purpose in life which was to free the Israelites from enslavement to the Philistines. Instead, she, she kind of replaces that whole section uh, with until his death. The angel of the Lord didn't say until his death. She says until his death. She leaves the, leaves the husband kind of in the dark on this detail. So the most important thing that we can see in the midst of all this is the unparalleled mercy of God. The people don't deserve God's grace. They don't deserve his help. What do they deserve? They deserve justice. They deserve condemnation. God's under no obligation to extend his grace to these people who have sinned against him. 
who've turned their hearts away from him repeatedly, and this time for 40 years. He's under no obligation to save them. And even if they did cry out to him for help, is he under any obligation to extend mercy? Absolutely not. Because justice is giving somebody what they deserve. And the truth is that sin, all sin, even the smallest sins, demand justice. And God is perfectly just. Mercy, by its very definition, is never obligatory. God is never obliged to show mercy. By definition, grace is never deserved. And let's be honest, we've all, every one of us, we've all sinned. Let me give you a sobering thought. Before I even got to church this morning, I am quite sure that I had sinned badly enough that justice would require that I spend eternity in hell before I even got here today. Not that I committed some huge you know, horrific sin. I'm not up here to, to confess to moral failure or anything. You know, there's nothing to, to really confess. But in my heart and my mind, you know, I, I get busy on Sunday mornings and I'm distracted. And yeah, so by the time I got here, I had sinned badly enough to deserve eternity in hell. Because that's what even the quote-unquote smallest sin deserves. How many times do you think you sinned today before you even stepped foot in here? It's just something to think about for a moment. God's holiness is offended that badly by even the smallest sins. And even that that short of a period of time. And yet God extends mercy to us, covering us with his grace through faith. By believing in Jesus, by putting our trust for salvation in Jesus, he covers us with his grace. God's justice was completely satisfied once and for all, perfectly and completely. When Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself, he took the wrath that we deserve on Calvary. And he covered us with his righteousness, a righteousness that we don't deserve, a righteousness that is just grace. So God's justice demands that sin be punished, but God's mercy is extended to his people. As God told Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. So knowing that God, knowing, believing that God has been gracious to us should change absolutely everything in our lives. It should change absolutely everything. And I'm convinced that the more we we grasp it, the more we understand it, the more we kind of come to terms with it, as difficult as it is to understand, the more humble we become. Certainly with God, but I think also with each other as well. Because there's no boasting in receiving mercy. You don't boast that somebody was willing to forgive you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. Justice is what we deserve. If only we had just a a fuller understanding, a fuller grasp on the mercy of God. I know that for me, the more more fully I've seen it, 
the more fully I've come to understand it, to learn about it, to learn to trust in it, the more I've come to just passionately love the Lord Jesus. I know, I know that I deserve justice. That's what I deserve. I deserve justice. But Jesus took my place. It's a life-changing truth that I so badly want each and every one of us to just wrap our, our minds around more fully. That's why I love Matt Redmond's song, Mercy, so much. Oh, may I never lose the wonder, the wonder of your mercy. What, a, what an amazing and wonderful thing the mercy of God is. And I see so much mercy being poured out on his people in this passage. I want to make sure that we don't miss that. But look at Manoah's reaction. Getting back to the text here. He prays to God that this man of God who visited his wife would return to teach them how to raise their son in a way that's, that's pleasing to God, in accordance with this Nazarite vow. That's the prayer of every parent, by the way. Not necessarily that our kids would live by the Nazarite vow or that we'd teach them to live under the Nazarite vow, but that we'd be able to teach our kids how to live a life that's pleasing to God. At least that should be our prayer, right? Because on our own, it's something that we as parents are incapable of doing perfectly. A parent ultimately can only do the best that they can and there comes a point where you got to leave the rest in God's hands because we're all flawed. We all have shortcomings. Nobody knows my faults, my personal faults and failures better than my wife or better than my kids do. And that's humbling. But the best thing to do parents is to stay in prayer for our kids, both while they're with us and after they've moved out, maybe especially after they've moved out, uh, when they have you know freedom like they've never experienced before. There is a world of temptation out there. We all know it because we've all done the same thing. And some would say that Manoah's prayer demonstrates kind of a lack of faith, and maybe to an extent uh, we'll see that, that it is kind of. But at this point, at least he, he's not asking for proof. He's not saying, God, why don't you prove that this is going to happen? Uh, he's asking for help, not proof, which, I don't know, is, is kind of impressive. Let's continue, verses 9 to 11. And God, re, uh, and God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Now, I I love that response, I am. He just leaves it hanging there. I am. We know the significance of that. That's the same thing that God told Moses when Moses said, Who am I supposed to tell the people sent me? I am who I am. Wow. So, yeah, he makes it clear here, but apparently Manoah doesn't catch that. So this leaves no doubt, it should leave no doubt in our minds anyway, that this angel of the Lord is not an angel per se, It's the Lord himself acting as his own messenger, which is what angel means. means messenger. He's delivering his own message 
to Manoah's wife, to Samson's mother. And we know that, but Manoah and his wife uh, do not, at least not yet. But remember that Samson's mother didn't tell Manoah what Samson's purpose in life was ultimately going to be. So Manoah tries to find out for himself. Verses 12 to 14, we read, And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And he just kind of leaves it at that. He leaves some of those questions Unanswered. He doesn't give Manoah really any specific details here about how to raise Manoah in accordance with this Nazarite vow to raise him in a way that would please God. But the point is simply that their son is to be set apart for the purposes of God and that his wife is to observe all that she's been instructed to observe. There's no new information that gets passed on here, but it's interesting to note, at least, that the angel of the Lord has nothing to say about the mission or the purpose that Samson would have in his life. But the interaction isn't completely over. We've got a little bit more to go. In fact, it's about to become pretty interesting. So let's continue. Verses 15 to 18. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? First thing, on, on the surface, it looks like Manoah is just being pleasant as can be, that like he's just being polite and hospitable, but we need to understand the significance of his desire to feed the angel of the Lord. You see, in the pagan culture of their region and in, in many cultures today, to feed someone was to make that person indebted uh, to or obligated to you. In fact, we still see this in a lot of uh, cultures and a lot of religions today. The people would leave food for an idol or leave food for their false god of, of choice with the expectation that in turn, this false god is going to be manipulated, that they are now under obligation to you to do what you want. See, if you survey world religions what you'll see is that they're all just a futile attempt to make the actions of God contingent upon the actions of men. The angel of the Lord, therefore, refuses to accept what might have seemed on the surface anyway. In our culture, in our Western mindset, it might have seemed like just a hospitable offer because he understands what Manoah's trying to do. He understands what's going on inside Manoah's mind, inside Manoah's heart at this point. He understands that Manoah is trying to manipulate him and bring him into indebtedness and obligation. Now, if you remember, Gideon actually tried to do the same thing when the angel of the Lord visited him back in chapter 6. 
Uh, he was visited by the angel of the Lord, and he goes to prepare a meal, and he doesn't eat it. It goes up in smoke. Uh, he, so he got the same response Gideon did. Um, but I'm guessing that Manoah has probably never heard of Gideon. He probably doesn't know anything about Gideon. And so when this doesn't work, offering to, to you know, cook him a meal and, and feed him, when that doesn't work, Manoah asks for the name of this man of God, quote-unquote. And again, this might seem hospitable. It might seem innocent enough. I mean, in our, in our Western mindset, you know, uh, when people, you know, when we meet people for the first time, it's, it's expected that you would say, what's your name? You know, so that you know what to call the other person. But... Again, while this seems innocent enough and friendly, it is yet another attempt to manipulate God and to make him feel obligated. Uh, one commentator notes this. He says, quote, In the Near Eastern context, knowing the name of a heavenly being provided power over that being. So Manoah is still seeking manipulative power through special knowledge. End quote. The fact that Manoah is just oblivious. He's, he's just completely in the dark here is significant because part of the theme here is the spiritual barrenness, the, the spiritual blindness of God's people. This isn't just a spiritual being that he's talking to. This is God himself standing right before him, and he has no idea. He has no idea. This is not just a God. This is the God. The God who created all things. And Manoah is in the dark. He doesn't recognize him at all. And at this point, you might be wondering, what's the point of this second visit? No new information. It seems like nothing's changed. But we're about to find out what the purpose was. Let's continue. Verses 19 to 22. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, when people, when sinful people, and we are all sinful, realize that they are in the presence of God, they always have the exact same reaction. They are filled with fear, incomparable fear, terror. Isaiah, when he realized that he was standing before a holy God, he says, woe is me, for I am lost. He's saying, I'm done for. I, I, I deserve nothing but condemnation. When John had his vision and saw God in heaven, In the book of Revelation, he tells us that he fell down as if he were dead. Ezekiel saw God too. He tells us this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. What did Peter do when he realized who Jesus was? 
He fell face down and he cried out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This reaction of incomparable fear is one of the signature marks of a legitimate encounter with God. How many books that are supposedly written, or written supposedly about a vision in heaven, tell us that the person fell down in complete fear, awe of being in the presence of a holy God. And I know that people love these books. Uh, you know, it's so much so that they get on the, the New York Times bestseller lists. But this is one of the biggest and brightest red flags of all of these stories. They are missing this element. These people aren't afraid of God and said, oh, it was so peaceful being up there. No sense of fear or awe. This is one of the legitimate uh, marks, one of the marks of a, of a legitimate encounter with God. So the purpose of this second visit was to make sure that Manoah knew exactly who he was dealing with. And by the time the angel of the Lord departs from them, he knows that this wasn't just some ordinary angel. This wasn't just some uh, average messenger. This was God himself. This is what theologians would refer to as a Christophany. That is, it's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Manoah had seen God. He had witnessed the glory of God, and it almost scares him to death. He falls face down, and his wife does too. Because he apparently knows enough about the history of Israel that he knows that no one may see God and live, which we learn from Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. What he doesn't realize is that no one may see God the Father and live. But his reaction reveals more fully his faithlessness. Because what would happen to Samson if the Lord were to, to have killed them right there? It just shows that he doesn't quite grasp everything that's going on. Maybe he doesn't quite believe that this is really going to happen. His wife seems to have better spiritual insight at this point than he does. So she says to him in verse 23, but his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering in our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. So his wife realizes that God hadn't come to destroy them. He wasn't going to kill them, even though that is indeed what they deserved as sinful people who had sinned against a holy and righteous God, all the while never repenting. Manoah had wanted information about how to raise their son when the truth was that all he needed, the information that he really needed, he needed an understanding of who he was dealing with. He needed an understanding of God, a healthy dose of the fear of God. He didn't need to know the rules as much as he needed to know the ruler. As we'll ultimately see, Samson's life story is a testimony to the shortcomings of the culture, the sinfulness of the culture, the sinfulness of his parents, 
He grows up to be a, a man who sins freely and pursues the, fle- the pleasures of the flesh above and beyond everything else in life. And yet God's message through Manoah and his wife and through Samson is that we need to know and love God more than we need to know all the rules. There isn't enough paper in the world to write a book that would teach us exactly how to get through every trial, how to get through every storm, how to get through every valley or twist and turn in life. There's not a book that could possibly be big enough to cover every possible scenario. But God gives us something better than that. He gives us himself. And in giving us himself, he gives us something that we don't deserve. He gives us grace. He gives us mercy. To show mercy is to refrain from giving somebody what they deserve. Grace is to give some, uh, someone something that they don't deserve. And God owes us nothing. He is not obligated to anyone. We deserve nothing short of the wrath of God. But Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross in order that all who trust in him, trusting in him alone for their salvation, believing in him, will receive an outpouring of the mercy of God. That is, we won't receive the wrath that we deserve. Instead, we receive salvation by God's grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God didn't give us detailed instruction to every obstacle that life would throw at us, every difficulty that we might face. He instead gave us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who guides us, who convicts us, who strengthens us, teaches us, grows us. And he gave us his holy word, the Bible, which is sufficient for instruction in all of life's trials, taking those principles You can apply those to a lot of different things. Everything. Every circumstance is covered by the the principles in the Bible in one way or another. People will say, you know, where the Bible's silent, be silent. I say the Bible isn't silent on anything because these principles extend to the furthest corners of our lives. This all, the the Holy Spirit indwelling us and, and the word of God, this is all the unmerited and the wonderful grace and mercy of God poured out on his people for one reason. That they might grow in the likeness of Christ and thereby bring glory to him. So may we learn what Manoah learned here. To know God. To fear God. And to trust in and live in light of his incredible mercy. In order that our lives may glorify him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we just confess that we are broken by sin. That by our nature, God... We are not only sinners by nature, we are sinners by choice. And far too often, God, we turn our hearts away from you, just as Israel continually turned their hearts away from you. And that we go through seasons, Lord, where in our rebellion and in in the stubbornness in our hearts, we put off turning back to you. 
I thank you, God, that even when we're faithless, you are faithful to your people, that you promised that your work in us would be completed, that you came not just to give us temporary life, you came to, uh, to give us eternal life in your son through faith in him. And I pray, Lord, that as we grow to understand your mercy more deeply, that we would see the glory of you reflected in your mercy, that we would love you more deeply, the more deeply we come to understand your mercy. God, our purpose is to glorify you. So may your will be done in our lives, that we may glorify you, that we may be set apart from the world to be a light in the darkness for you. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.